0: I had to roll the trash down to the curb and I had probably rolled it like maybe 5-10 feet and a fucking rat came somewhere off of the trash can and it didn't touch me in any way. If it had, I probably would have died straight away. But I was wearing sandals too, so I was just like, please God, do not touch my feet.
1: Well, yeah, because if the rat touches your feet, you have to burn your feet off. That's just how that works. Everyone and welcome to Reader's Digress, the podcast where we read nonfiction books so that you don't have to, unless you want to. I'm Kate Kiriaku
0: And I'm Molly Fox, and today we are going to finish our discussion of Bad Blood, Secrets and Lies in a Silicon Valley Startup by John Kerry Rue. Hey! I <laughs> thought you were about to do an Elizabeth Holmes voice.
1: I thought about it, I thought about I thought it, but then I was like, no, don't do that to them.
0: I... I mean, don't worry. I'll do it again at some point. I just... Don't use the same joke twice, you know what I mean?
1: (laughs) (laughs) But also, yours is good. My Elizabeth Holmes voice doesn't make any sense at all. I'm I'm going to keep practicing by myself.
0: Yeah, for sure. For when we hit it big and we go on the road, specifically with our podcast about Theranos, no other aspects of our podcast. Like a forever part series about... Elizabeth Holmes voice. (laughs) My impression isn't good because I laugh every time. It's like, if you're going to do an impression, commit.
1: Yeah, well, I have uh, big plans later to become an Elizabeth Holmes impersonator. Just like the Cowboys on Times Square.
0: Oh my god, you have the eyes for it. So you're halfway there. And is she tall? Why did I assume she was tall? Just from her weirdo personality. I was like, she must be tall.
1: excuse you not all tall people are weirdos although this one is (laughs) you know i i also assumed she was tall but in retrospect i think she was just always standing next to sunny
0: sunny who is diminutive yeah he can take that monogar to the grave. Although, okay, so in this I'm gonna recommend a podcast at the end of this for the pop culture pairing, so I'm probably gonna mention it a couple times, but I was listening to it today because obviously I'm like really into this story. And Sunny's voice I was like, oh, wait, this man sounds so interesting and attractive. And I was like, okay, first of all, it's been a long pandemic, I guess. (laughs) Second of all, I was like, Molly, Google him right away. Stop, stop it, stop it. Look at his face. Remember what this person actually looks like. And in the podcast, they were like, he would wear these expensive jeans and loafers. I was like, okay, I'm not. I'm not into any dude who's wearing a goddamn loafer, <laughs> a Gucci slide. You're just Get like, out. All
1: right. And attraction over. Thank you for that <laughs> Google image search. Oh, Always yeah. there for me when I need you. And they
0: were like, seriously. And they said he like wears a ton of cologne. Which oh. is like, you know, no one loves a ton of cologne. I don't know where anyone in the world got the impression that people love a ton of cologne or perfume. They don't. <laughs>
1: I, like, have you ever been in an elevator with somebody and they get on and the whole elevator sounds, (laughs) smells, smells like their cologne or perfume and it just is so overwhelming that you're just like, I have to get out of here.
0: Here's what I'll say. The Venn diagram of people who like colognes that smell bad and people who like to wear too much of it is a circle. For real. (laughs) Okay. Why? It's is it just like a lack of discernment? I suppose. Yeah, it's just a
1: general lack of good judgment. I I think you could just say like, I assume there are also the people that wear those gigantic Gucci belts, which by the way is also something that Sunny was described as wearing. I'm pretty sure. So. <laughs> Welcome to the shitting on Sunny podcast.
0: <laughs> well, one of the things that I'm going to talk about more today is pettiness. So we're just really getting really it in there and ramping the ourselves
1: up for the pettiness. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I'm down uh I don't have a summary today so we can pretty much just jump into whatever you want to talk about first but I think you have a couple quotes and a question and I have all of the quotes and <laughs> I seriously pulled like 10 quotes but I promise I won't read all of them and then we will wrap up with our pop culture pairings and ratings
0: yeah yes well maybe a- to start, I will just mention something that I felt like last time I was trying to be very generous towards the employees at Theranos that they didn't necessarily know the the depth of the scam, which I stand by. But one piece that I'd like to pull out and just maybe question that a little bit or like be a little less generous this time is, again, I was listening to that podcast about the whole Theranos saga And one of the things that they talk about that John Kerry Rue also talks about in his book, but I don't know if it was just like a part that I didn't absorb as much or if he doesn't go into as much detail. But when uh, there was a point at which Joe Biden, while he was the vice president, actually came and toured one of the Theranos facilities. And John Kerry Rue details this. But the thing that the podcast really delved into that I was like, damn, is how much they... uh, faked everything that joe biden saw like they rebuilt an entire lab space that was not a lab space that they used at all they pulled in all of the edison units that were this new technology that they were working on that never Mm -hmm. worked and it was like the first thing that they developed as their like lab little miniature lab And they, like, set up this entire lab space and including, like, they repainted walls and moved stuff around and made people not come into the office that day. There was so much they did. And as I was listening to that, I was just like, okay, so everyone had to have known how much they were fucking lying. Like, this is, again, maybe if it's, like, a startup in the Valley, that's common where you're just, like, bullshitting the whole time until you actually, like, get Like, um, customers? God, why can't I think of any word today? Um, but in this instance in particular, it just feels very much like you had to have known that that was not an appropriate approach to the product you were selling, because it's not a, an app or whatever that is completely, who cares if it doesn't work?
1: It is surprising that you step back and you're like, okay, so nobody questioned, Why do we have to create something for the presidential administration to come and see? Why can't they just see what we have? You know, like the the whole idea that you would just accept that as being reasonable and then not question, like, why do we have to fake any of this is kind of hilarious because there were so few people who did question it.
0: Yes, yes. I think a good like way to describe a difference between like appropriate faking and not appropriate faking is like a couple years ago I worked at a museum and we had a grand reopening of a facility. It was a new facility. And there was a, a literal princess who came to this and there was like a president of a country. It was a big deal. And so we had like security, there was a gala, there was like a whole big pomp and circumstance. And there was definitely stuff going on behind the scenes that we like kept quiet and like hid different debacles that happened and there was some very much like don't look behind the curtain, whatever. But the museum itself wasn't faked, okay? Like the the museum (laughs) The Museum was real and
1: for (laughs) That museum's been dead for fifty years, (laughs) Molly.
0: There hasn't been a museum around here in thirty-five years. That I stole that joke from Karen Kilgara from my favorite M- murder. I mean, just FYI, that's uh, her voice and everything is what I copied there. Proprietary technology. Please <laughs> nice don't
1: get us sued. <laughs>
0: podcast trades.
1: Just kidding. We'd so, be lucky no. to be sued if
0: Karen <laughs> actually listened to our podcast.
1: I guess.
0: <laughs> Seriously, Karen, I love you. <laughs> Call me. <laughs> okay,
1: so the book.
0: <laughs> Okay, so anyway, my point was just that, like, even though there was definitely stuff going on behind the scenes that you don't show the princess, the museum was real. And that is the difference between the whole, like, Joe Biden tour and what Theranos was doing. So I I think this time I'm going to be a little bit less generous to some of the staff just because as we get into today, one of the things we're going to really dig into is the way the scam was uncovered. And as we do that, I think it'll become more obvious that a lot of people did have to go along with a lot, and that's a real goddamn shame.
1: Yeah, and there were, we should say, there were a ton of employee resignations while all of this was happening, and... There were a lot of people that ended up quitting and later even regretted how long they stuck around and had their name attached to Theranos. So it obviously doesn't apply to everyone, but you're exactly right that there's no way that if somebody came into my workplace and said, hey, we have to stage an entirely different workplace to impress whoever, I wouldn't be like, hmm, that sounds strange. Sounds like something weird is happening here. <laughs> sounds like maybe yeah. you're trying to con someone? Right? Did
0: Is, <laughs> is anything that we've done real? <laughs> no. <laughs> cool. Got it. <laughs> yeah, that would just not bode well, certainly. Yeah.
1: Uh, okay, well, do you want to start out with one of your quotes, or do you want me to start out with one of mine?
0: Uh, why don't I start out with one of mine? So, the place that I was going to start today, so you'll all recall, if you listened to the first episode, that I went through the three P's of Theranos, which were Pregnancy. Pettiness, Paranoia, and Pathological Life.
1: <laughs> One of 45 P's related to Theranos. <laughs> Pregnancy, Passive Aggressiveness, and Proprietary Protection. Trade Secret.
0: <laughs> well, anyway, there were a lot of P's. <laughs> um, but the... One that I focused on the most last time was the pathological lying. and But the two I was going to talk more about today was pettiness and paranoia. So one of my favorite stories about pettiness is it has to do with one of Elizabeth Holmes' like childhood neighbors. They're the Fuse family, Noel and Richard Fuse. And they live next to the Holmeses while Elizabeth was growing up. And Richard Fuse is like an entrepreneur. He got he has a medical degree and he has quite a bit of money that he earned through various patents that he patented. And so at a certain point in the Theranos saga, before it was very mainstream, Richard Fuse found out about Elizabeth Holmes's company from his wife, who found out from Elizabeth's mom. And he had an idea for an aspect of the technology that he presumed they would eventually have to use, which was like a a chip that would go into the... I
1: don't want to interrupt you, because I know you're in the middle of telling the story, but an important part of why he came up with this patent was because Elizabeth didn't allow him to invest in Theranos. Or, I shouldn't say didn't allow, she didn't ask them to invest in Theranos from the get-go, and they were deeply offended and hurt by this, and so therefore he wanted to get back at her and thought that by patenting something she would later eventually need that he could hold it over her head.
0: Yes, actually thank you so much for saying that because that's exactly the point. Like he wanted he was literally just being petty to be like I'm going to patent this piece of technology that you'll eventually have to use inside of the blood reader to like uh send the results to a doctor's office that can then like teleport back the information of the drug that you need. Like, it's all made up. None of it fucking existed, so... It's
1: me of, like, the beginning of um Back to the Future, where they have all of these, like, you know, like, his breakfast <laughs> is being made for him and stuff. It, to yeah. me, it feels like that sort of idea of the future, that things will just, like, happen, and that you won't have to do anything at all. It's, like, humans' greatest want is to just be lazy and never have to do anything at all, and it's like, okay, guys, eventually we're gonna have to do something. Like...
0: Yeah. Well, I kind of found it amazing how, like, the patent process works. Like, I had always been under the impression that you – it was, like, an invention that you had ready to go, which is, like, very naive of me now that I'm saying this out loud. I'm very embarrassed that I'm, like, a Disney princess of a person. And I'm like, once you make the magic clock, then you can patent it. Like, who are you? <laughs> But it's very funny that basically you can just have a a stupid idea in your house and email someone and be like, I'm going to patent this in case anyone ever needs to use it once they invent the technology with which to use it. Like, okay, I guess.
1: Yeah, it's like once they get to a step where they can actually utilize this technology I haven't actually created but just conceived of, then they'll be sorry. And it's like, wait, I'm sorry, what is happening?
0: So that's what few. Literally did. He had this idea and he patented it before Elizabeth did so that if she ever needed to use it, which she would presumably given the technology she was pretending to invent, then she would have to pay for it. And then he'd get back at her for not asking him to invest, yada, yada. And eventually what happened um, was that Elizabeth found out about this and sued him for stealing proprietary technology, which... Did not happen at all, so fighting pettiness with pettiness again. Yeah,
1: as we just discussed, neither of them had any actual technology. They just thought of ideas and just wrote them on a paper, and then that was the whole thing.
0: You can't steal an idea if all your ideas are made up, Elizabeth. Like, aren't everyone's ideas made up? Now it's getting <laughs> deep and philosophical.
1: What is truth? Find out this week on Reader's Diagrams.
0: <laughs> That's right, we would have to put on the NPR voices to continue the nbr this voices <laughs> yours is incredible
1: <laughs> hello welcome to fresh air i'm terry gross i can't do her voice
0: i can't do it but i love her terry i love you <laughs> okay so what i'm gonna read is just like a a section of that um patent pettiness from the fuses it says, FUSA's patent application became available about a week later on January 3rd, 2008, to anyone who performed a search in the. Is this what I wanted? I'm so sorry.
1: It's cool. I'm just going to keep practicing my NPR voice over here. So, Molly, I see here that you grew up in Ohio. Tell me a little bit more about what that was like.
0: I didn't grow up in Ohio. I was in Ohio. <laughs>
1: Oh my gosh, our whole episode should have just been me interviewing you as Elizabeth Holmes.
0: Oh my god, that would have been fucking hilarious.
1: Let's start. Oh my god, should we do it now? <laughs> this is no longer a podcast, it's just an improv group at this point. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so I'm going to read this section that details what happened essentially after Elizabeth found out about the patent because she, Richard Fuse, patented his chip that he imagined. And then Theranos didn't find out about it for a couple of years. So it says, However, however, Theranos didn't learn of its existence, the patent, for another five months until Gary Frenzel, the head of Theranos' chemistry team, came across it and called it to Elizabeth's attention. By then, the Holmeses and the Fuses were no longer on speaking terms. And Fuse was referring to his patent filing in conversations with his wife as the Theranos killer. So basically, this is the pettiest person who met the other pettiest person in the entire world and they just had like it's like that joke of can god make a boulder so heavy that he can't lift it it's like can one person be so petty that this other petty person can't out petty them yeah
1: seriously it just again makes me feel really good about my life choices that i don't have anyone in my life that's like that where you just spend all of your time and energy being the worst possible version that you can be it's just like really that's what you want to spend your time doing okay all right uh one of the things that reminds me of pettiness is actually elizabeth holmes obsession with steve jobs because she was obsessed with all of the wrong things you know it's always the people who don't understand what made steve jobs successful that are like oh my god, I'll just wear a turtleneck and Levi's and I'll be Steve Jobs. And it's like, well, not exactly. No, it reminds me of those self help books that are like, successful people do these five things. And it's like, you know, make your bed when you get up and wake up at 3am and only eat kale or whatever. And it's like, I'm pretty sure you're missing a few components of what makes someone successful. That is Um, the
0: exact personality of the magician musician that I talked about (laughs) last weekend or last week, which is that the fake idea that if you are someone who gets up early and drinks a green smoothie and like works out at 6am, that is what makes you successful. No, it doesn't. just having self-discipline does not equal success and obviously this is not the podcast where we talk about that but okay but that episode is coming
1: (laughs) i want to run through a short list of things that embody elizabeth's full obsession with steve jobs She liked to call the mini lab the iPod of healthcare, which, ugh, okay. It's the
0: stupidest thing I've ever heard in my entire life. Did it it play music while it took your blood? No. We'll
1: give it to you. Okay. Uh, Then she used to dress like a frumpy grandma. That's not how they described her, but it's like kind of how they described her. They didn't use those words. Those are mine, but... That's kind of how they described how she used to dress. And then someone told her that if she was going to be the founder and CEO of this tech startup, that she needed to dress the part. And so she started wearing all black turtlenecks like Steve Jobs and pulling her hair back and um, wearing the same thing every day, which, as we just discussed, makes you the most successful. That's all any of us have to do to become a billionaire. I can't believe that. The rest of us just didn't think of it, obviously.
0: Why didn't I think of a black turtleneck? Warren Buffett has been telling me for years. Although in Elizabeth's defense, picking out clothes is an actual nightmare that if slash when I ever go back to an office full time, never. But should I be forced, I am going to pick out a uniform of an outfit. It will probably be like a black shirt, black turtleneck, a pair of hot ass slacks and that's what i'm gonna wear every single day and i'm gonna become a person who only wears one thing and instead of being like what a weirdo it's gonna be like oh my god molly has such incredible personal style she just knows herself she doesn't need to change every day that's goddamn right and in fact it will be laziness and people will mistake it for chicness that is the goal
1: yeah that sounds great for you i love that for you I'm all in. I'm very supportive of this decision. I myself am far too uh, impatient and I get bored too easily to wear the same thing every day because I'll be like, no, I want a pattern today. And Mm -hmm. then the next day I wear like all black and then the next day I wear like a suit and everyone's like, what are, what are you trying to pull off? Is this a cohesive style? And the answer is no. It's just whatever I feel like that day.
0: (laughs) Exactly. You know what? I appreciate that and applaud that as well. I just want to be someone who appears to be a minimalist, even though inside of my body, the chaos reigns supreme. Outside, who would know? A perfect, smooth calm of a black shirt and a blue pair of slacks. Yeah. Inside, hellfire reigns.
1: Have you ever seen Kanye West's New York apartment?
0: (laughs) No, it sounds awful already. I feel stressed. It's the most
1: minimalist. Imagine a museum that's all completely white, even the floors. And then uh, even the furniture, of which there is very little, is all white marble.
0: Oh, my God. He's... Talk about insufferable. Jesus
1: Christ. Okay, but what if your wardrobe looked like that?
0: (laughs) My wardrobe can look like that. We need to stop... We have to stop that. Wow, we digressed
1: so far on that That one. That one's
0: too far. Back to the beginning.
1: Okay, so in addition to dressing the part like Steve Jobs, she also referred to Steve Jobs as Steve. Like they were intimate friends. And I can't get over it because it's so clear that she was delusional in every capacity of her life that she thought that she and Steve Jobs were good friends that it, and she never met him. It was just like what what do you think is happening here? Like could you describe to me what you think your relationship is with Steve Jobs? I would just let, love to hear that.
0: It makes me think so much of that scene in 30 Rock where Liz thinks that she meets Oprah on a plane <laughs> and it turns out to be like a 14-year-old woman. Girl. And yeah, like this is—I imagine Elizabeth Holmes took a couple too many Valium for a flight once. Met a guy named Jarvis who had a pair of glasses and like a black turtleneck, and she was just like, "Steve Jobs." Steve Steve Jobs. Listen, I'm gonna call you Steve. Is that okay? She's like throwing back.
1: Oh my god, you're you're my mentor now, Steve. Oh, oh, but
0: she would be talking like she's like Steve. got to get over myself. I'm not as funny as I think. I don't know how to help you with that one.
1: (laughs) So Carrie Rue devotes an entire chapter to her obsession with Steve Jobs and of course he died from pancreatic cancer at a relatively young age and there was a biography that was written about him uh, by Walter Isaacson. So uh, I'm going to read this quote and then I'll kind of talk about it a bit more. Uh, So the quote is talking about one of the Theranos employees, Greg, and it starts a month or two after Jobs' death, some of Greg's colleagues in the engineering department began to notice that Elizabeth was borrowing behaviors from management techniques described in Walter Isaacson's biography of the late Apple founder Steve Jobs. They were all reading the book too and could pinpoint which chapter she was on based on which period of Jobs' career she was impersonating. Elizabeth even gave the Mini Lab, which was their prototype at the time, a jobs inspired codename, the 4S. It was a reference to the iPhone 4S, which Apple had coincidentally unveiled the day before Jobs passed away.
0: I, the thing about that that blows my mind is that they're like, well, yes. Like, oh, Elizabeth gave it a code name. No, she gave it the exact same name as the phone. It's like, what are you? It's hardly
1: a code name if I start referring to you as
0: Molly. (coughs) Like, what? Literally, it's like they gave Steve Jobs a code name, which was Steve Jobs. Just like, I don't know. It's like, so you weren't even creative
1: enough. Not only were you not creative enough to have your own management style and your own style of operating in the world, but you had to take literally his. Name for the products that he created, you can just go with your own one. Like, it's just so bizarre to me. Um, And I have another quote that's pretty similar to this one that I wanted to read as well. Uh, It's not specifically about Steve Jobs, but I think that it's quite related. Okay. And I know that you (laughs) liked it as well because you had texted me when you first read it. So, after things started to fall apart, uh, there were a ton of resignations by people uh, at Theranos, and this was in the midst of everyone understanding that the valuation of the company was shortly going to fall to extremely low. So the quote begins, The resignations infuriated Elizabeth and Sonny. The following day, they summoned the staff for an all-hands meeting in the cafeteria. Copies of The Alchemist, Paulo Koho's famous novel about a shepherd boy who finds his destiny by going on a journey to Egypt, had been placed on every chair. Still visibly angry, Elizabeth told the gathered employees that she was building a religion. If there were any among them who didn't believe, they should leave. Sonny put it more bluntly. Anyone not prepared to show complete devotion and unmitigated loyalty to the company should, quote, get the fuck out, unquote. Ooh, boy. <laughs> oh, 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 boy. Here's what I'll say. ooh, Both. you're building a religion. Hmm. Interesting.
0: <laughs> interesting for someone like who... like a cult to me.
1: Interesting for someone who wants to distance themselves from the idea of a cult leader. <laughs>
0: um, okay, here's what I'd say. I would have many months before that moment swept my evening bag off the counter of the desk I was working at and stormed out (laughs) but but had I not that would have been the moment that I said you know what I'm gonna leave right now in the middle of this goddamn speech ma'am and I would have said operator come get me
1: (laughs) (laughs) yeah it would have been at that point that I would have been like yeah so good luck with that I'm I'm gonna head out though you know I'm I think I'm good I'm good
0: sunglasses would have gone on my face i am imagining myself in an evening gown for no reason but that's what it would have been i would have stood up from the conference room thrown the copy of the alchemist across said conference room and walked out i'm imagining you You can keep your turn with
1: like a three yard long scarf that you throw on your way out and it stays like fluttering in the wind as you walk out
0: Yes. In this version of the story, I am 65 years old and have gray, long, flowing hair all the way down. of course.
1: I mean, you could also have, like, a very, like, bohemian look to you, but I don't know how well that would fit with Silicon Valley.
0: I would have been the debutante of Silicon Valley. (laughs) Is this anything? Hey. (laughs) Are we doing podcasting yet?
1: Are we funny yet? Am I famous? What the fuck? (laughs) All right. So, anyway...
0: Yeah, that's that was one of my favorite quotes from the entire book, honestly. When the audacity of someone to stand up in all seriousness and be like, oh, I'm starting a religion. What are you talking about? It is is and will forever be one of the funniest red flags when someone starts talking about how they're creating a religion. All the religions that will ever exist already exist. <laughs> you don't get to create a new one. <laughs> Is my take well, on
1: it. You especially don't get to create one that's predicated on taking other people's money so that you can have power over them, which is essentially what she was doing Absolutely. by melding her business and her uh, religion.
0: <laughs> I just. Anytime someone is so far gone into their own ideological bullshit that they start talking about how they are creating a religion oh, we have lost it entirely. Yep. That's, I just can't believe no one, like everyone in that room didn't just stand up and say, all right, we'll see ourselves out. Like that's. Yeah. Oof. Yeah. Okay. So I think now would be a good time to talk about, like connect some dots here because I talked about Richard Fuse at the beginning and how his pettiness led to him being sued Mm -hmm. by Elizabeth Holmes and Theranos. And that lawsuit really broke him emotionally, it's described in the book. He had a lot of money, so it's not like it ruined him financially and all these things. But it, it was very costly. And they settled after, I think, years of really contentious litigation. Mm-hmm. And I, from the way it's described in the book, it seems pretty clear that Richard Fuse really kind of regretted that he'd even been so petty to file that patent. Yeah. But because of that really awful lawsuit and all the bad blood, pun 100% intended, (laughs) Uh, unintentional intention, Richard got just a a bee in his bonnet and he really like followed the Theranos thing because he started to catch on to the fact that it's probably fake. And he contacted a blogger, I think a pharmaceutical blogger or a, uh, a chemist blogger or something. Do you know what he was?
1: I think he chemist. was um, a biotech. Yeah, I think he was a biotech blogger, and he had a very small but you know very loyal following.
0: Yeah. So it because Richard was so focused on Theranos, he eventually contacted a blogger who specialized in like biotech things, and. That blogger had a connection to John Kerry So it was through Fuse's like pettiness and like dogged pursuit of Theranos after that lawsuit that it even got to Kerry in the first place. So I think that's a really important thread of the story that like pettiness was the downfall of the entire thing. Yeah. And another aspect of the downfall that I'm going to talk about now is George Schultz and his grandson Tyler. So George Shultz is the, was a secretary of state for Reagan. And by the time Theranos was a the thing, he met Elizabeth, was very smitten by her and her apparent charisma, and then agreed to be on her board. And he was very supportive and he brought other like military and political people onto her board as well, which kind of gave her this cultural capital that kept funds coming in well beyond the point that other people were fairly skeptical of the company. And then George Schultz's grandson, Tyler, began to work at the company. And he, I think he has biology uh, specialization, and he was working on the thing we talked about last time, which is called proficiency testing. So his role was really focused on verifying the accuracy of the inventions, which, as we have laid out, were not accurate, and barely inventions. <laughs> <laughs> so, Tyler, over the course of his employment there, which was maybe a year or so, amasses a lot of information about how this is clearly not an accurate blood testing device, and Theranos is covering that up or being extremely negligent in their testing. And he presents all of this information to his grandfather at one point to try to convince him of the fraud and he was not successful in convincing George Schultz, which is, which is from Tyler's perspective, I would imagine felt very devastating and difficult, but I wanted to pull out this one quote about one of their conversations. And it was interesting to me because it illuminated the way Elizabeth operated behind the scenes in this like poisonous lie filled way Even more so than was like a parent, she was constantly manipulative and lying to people behind the scenes. So let me just find it. So Tyler has just been to his grandfather's and he's tried to explain the severity of the situation. And John Carrew says, Tyler thought he might be getting through this time, but he wasn't sure. The old man was hard to read. His years as a senior member of the President's Cabinet, facing down threats like the Soviet Union and the height of the Cold War, at the height of the Cold War, had made him a cipher. He absorbed information, but rarely volunteered any. They agreed to meet again for dinner that evening at his grandfather's house. As they parted, George told Tyler, They're trying to convince me that you're stupid. They can't convince me that you're stupid. They can, however, convince me that you're wrong. And in this case, I do believe that you're wrong. So that struck me as incredible. merely because it reveals the way that Elizabeth was actively lying to Tyler's grandfather about him being stupid. Like, mm-hmm. do you think that his grandfather doesn't know him well enough to know that he's not stupid? It was It's just such flagrant lying and so bold that this belief that you can manipulate anyone into believing anything is really, like, oof, you, my friend, have a problem. Yeah, I
1: also <laughs> felt that that passage was pretty upsetting, and I thought about it just in terms of his grandfather's willingness to believe that people who were trying to convince him yeah. that his grandfather that his grandson was not smart were still worth believing when it came to them trying to convince yes. them that he was wrong and it's like if you exactly. if you know that they've tried to manipulate you into believing one thing and you know that to not be true Why would you then turn around Mm -hmm. and believe their other manipulations or other assertions when they've already proven to you that they're manipulative and pathological liars? So it's just like so upsetting (laughs) because it's like you have evidence in your own lived experience that these people are liars, and then you're going to turn around and still believe them.
0: Yeah, that you put that so well. That's exactly what I was trying to describe. Was that even though they had elizabeth had provided evidence to george schultz that she didn't have good discernment because she was trying to argue that tyler was stupid when he's clearly not schultz was still willing to believe that she was correct Mm -hmm. which is like wow that is amazing that you were that deeply duped and smitten and i'm going i'm gonna keep saying that word because that i think is really what it was there was like a lot of older men who i think were very taken by this young charismatic attractive woman and that bothers me so so much because a woman can be smart and capable and all these things that you know elizabeth was to some degree and that's still not the thing that like gets people on her side men in particular it comes down to the fact that they were like enchanted by her and but it's so gross it, yeah. like, yes she was 19 and attractive to like a 70 year old man and that just bums me out so hard i can't take yeah, it yeah
1: yeah i agree <laughs> but also like yes he was not the only one and i think that's important to bring up is that her board mm-hmm. while not having a single person person with a biotech background and not having a single person with an actual medical background on her board. She had many, many people on her board that were ex-military leaders, including Jim Mattis. So, He, you know, it's just so fascinating that her board was full of all of these people who had leadership backgrounds and were were known to be or perceived to be uh, people that were known for their integrity. And here she was manipulating them and lying to them. And still, they were so ready to put their own hard-earned reputations on the line to stand up for her. And it does make you question, what really was it that made you feel like you were willing to stake your whole reputation on something that you didn't really know that much about because you don't know the medical background and you have no background in the actual technology that she was using? I mean, it's also probably worth noting at this point that in addition to not having anyone on her board that had any medical background, she also didn't have any investments from uh, venture capital firms that invest in biotech startups. She had no money flowing in from the people who knew best what equipment and technology and innovations would have been helpful in that arena.
0: And presumably because they knew that this was too good to be true, and they were skeptical enough of the technology, the boast of the technology, to want to invest and I think that's incredibly telling.
1: Yeah. And also that she wouldn't provide them with all of the answers that they wanted to have because they knew the right questions to ask and she did not have the answers to those questions.
0: Yeah. And I think people like George Schultz didn't really ask that many questions. They kind of just took it at face value of like, wow, this would be such an incredible technology for the military.
1: And again, I just don't understand because if I were someone that were investing $50 million into a company, I'm going to sit here and you're going to explain it to me as many times as you, I need you to, for me to understand what I'm investing in and what I'm putting my $50 million into. I'm not going to get like, why would I let you get away with like non-answers? What, why would I do that? Like, so it is incredible that anyone was willing to be like, yeah, sure. Just take the money. It's like, wait, what?
0: (laughs) It reminds me of what happens in relationships and all aspects of life. A lot of times where when you really want something to be true, you will stop looking for it to be false. Mm -hmm. And you won't won't investigate very hard if you know that it might be too good to be true. And you're like, but I want it to be true. So I'm just going to stop right here. You don't need to tell me anything else. You don't need to send mm-hmm. your receipts. <laughs> I believe you. You it's know, like, like standing that... at the
1: edge of a cliff and being <clears throat> like, "Well, I could never fall from here," and it's like, "Well, you you can yes. and you will." Just take one more step. <laughs> okay. Yeah,
0: exactly. Well, and I think, like we were talking about last time, Elizabeth was so cunning in her ability to exploit a very intense fear that we all experience of the idea of losing a loved one, mm-hmm. and that is so powerful to keep people from asking questions. If someone is saying that they have a solution to that problem and they have like enough evidence that you're like, well, maybe they do. I think there's a a deep inclination in all of us to be like, I'm just going to accept that as true because it makes me feel really good. And I want to feel that mm-hmm. way, you know? Yeah. So I think that's kind of what happened with a lot of these people who did not have medical expertise who were on her board um, they really wanted something to be true. Like, I think they wanted her to be everything that she claimed, and they wanted the technology to be everything that she claimed. Yeah. And clearly that led to like a perfect storm of not even being able to believe your own grandson, who you know to be incredibly intelligent and capable and honest. Like, that, oof, sad. But in, to like close the loop, Tyler, spoke out to like not spoke out he he was a whistleblower carrie Root. yeah and he was kind of carrie roo's first main contact with evidence to back up what he was saying not the only person to be clear but one of the most concrete leads that carrie roo got and tyler and his parents were hounded by the lawyers at theranos for years and it It was like hundreds of thousands of dollars that his parents had to spend on legal fees throughout the course of this. And this is getting towards my question, which one of the things that I thought of often while I was into the portion of the book where the fraud was starting to be uncovered and there were whistleblowers, Carrie Rue does talk a lot about the retaliation that Theranos took against them. The people who were ex-employees, who they suspected of speaking to the press, were followed. They were sent cease and desist letters. They were threatened with lawsuits. All these things. And I think most people understand this, but just to really, like, paint the picture. Anyone can sue you at any time for anything. They don't have to have evidence. Eventually, if they want to win the lawsuit, they should. But it's the... The process of the lawsuit that is so egregious to people. But this got me thinking about what I would do if I were in this situation. And I was at a company that something very serious was going wrong. And I felt a moral obligation to tell someone. But I had signed like an NDA, meaning that I could be sued if I spoke to anyone outside the company about anything that was going on. Mm -hmm. And... There is one story that they describe of one ex-employee who sent a bunch of emails to his personal account to document some of the times he tried to blow the whistle and was disregarded as, like, a way to protect himself should there ever be future lawsuits that he could at least demonstrate that, like, I tried to stop this. Mm -hmm. And in the course of the... Theranos lawyers threatening him he deleted those emails from his personal account to avoid being sued for violating his NDA but it occurred to me that if it had been me I probably would have taken photos on like a burner phone of those emails Mm -hmm. so that I had copies of them and just been like yes I deleted them because like how would they know that you saved emails so this was a long lead up, but my question that I want to hear what you think is like <laughs> You need legal advice. what would you do? <laughs> okay, so I'm in a bad bind.
1: <laughs> so here's the Ponzi scheme.
0: <laughs> do you want to join my MLM?
1: <laughs> we have essential oils.
0: <laughs> so my question is, if you were in a situation like this, what would you do?
1: Like, would I have taken another failsafe in order to preserve those emails? Or, like, would I have emailed the emails to my personal account in the first place? Or what do you mean?
0: Yeah, basically, like, this is what I'm imagining. If it had been me, I think what I would have done is every couple of days, if I knew I was going to be leaving and I needed documentation... I would have just printed something in the midst of other things I was printing. Yeah. Like, it, I would have printed my of the emails. I would have done something where there was no electronic trail because their IT people at their emails were, no sort of like, tracking everything. Yeah. So I would not have sent them to my personal account. But I would have, like, done something that was essentially untraceable, like printing them and squirreling them away. Obviously, this is dangerous. But that's probably the approach I would have taken.
1: But my middle name is so I was (laughs) seriously. There's also that. (laughs) Um, Yeah, I mean, I think that the the truth is that if I if I know myself well enough, I would have left that place long before it got to that point, because I am a pretty intuitive person, and I've worked in places where things were not right, and so. I think I would have caught on to that and been like, ooh, I don't really, I don't really like this vibe, so I'm gonna get out. But if it had gotten to the point, or if I had been hired so early on that I was like pretty high up in the company and I would have had access to a significant mm-hmm. portion of the evidence that would have taken Theranos down, I think I also mm-hmm. would have printed out a bunch of stuff because to me, printing is the easiest because as you're saying, you can't track it via a computer mm-hmm. uh, and you also would have no email track or you wouldn't be able to like trace that. You wouldn't have um, any yeah. of your other personal information on it. It would just be a piece of paper with the information. But I also don't yes. know if I would have thought about it early enough. To get the right information, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Like, I think I would have thought about it as Mm -hmm. things were ramping up and the atmosphere was so tense and people were so paranoid that you may not have been able to do that without somebody else, like, ratting you out and being like, huh, it's weird that Kate is printing out a bunch of emails. Like, nobody prints out emails. What does she think she's doing? You know? (laughs) So it is a very tricky situation because I think it's very alluring to be like... I would have like I would of have course. figured it I would out. have gamed the system. Um but yeah. honestly as they were printing stuff out, I was impressed that they had remembered to do so because I think it's just a much different environment that you would need to learn the skills to track everything as it's happening whereas like I've never been in a position where my company has wanted to sue me luckily. So I don't I think I, and I've never had to assign an NDA to work anywhere. So maybe if you were already in Silicon Valley where NDAs are common and you're kind of already forward thinking about litigious issues Mm -hmm. or kind of how litigious the atmosphere is, it would have dawned on me. But as me right now, as a person who has a career working in nonprofits, I'm not even sure that it would have. I think I would have just been like, yeah, I got to get out of (laughs) here.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Bye. Well, and I think, like, a lot of people did do that. I think the ones that are cited as thinking it through more were ones that feared for their professional lives going forward should Mm -hmm. Theranos be discovered. Because it was, like, laboratory managers and other people that were, like, their names were on the goddamn licenses. You know, things Mm -hmm. like that where it was, like, I I will lose things if I if this comes to a head and people find out that I was like signing off on this shit, which it's one of those things like, yeah, they were signing off on things they shouldn't have been, but it happened slowly. And by the time they were realizing like how bad things were, I think like you described, the culture was so intense and paranoid that they, it was really hard for them to protect themselves from it. For sure. But if I were in a position like that, I think I would have tried to come up with some way to, secretly steal information. The the trade secrets. Yeah,
1: the trade secrets of this is a con. Well, that's the thing is if I had emailed, if I had already thought of this, like if I was in that guy's exact situation where I had already thought of it, I had already sent the emails to my personal email, I don't think there's any amount of threatening that would make me completely delete those and not have something to back it up. I a hundred percent agree with that because at that point, you know that you're in some sort of danger. And the only thing you have that proves your word against theirs is the evidence that you just are deleting. So yeah, I think that that's, I agree with that.
0: And I, I also have been in those situations where like, I was getting so paranoid or freaked out about something that I like wasn't thinking very clearly. So I can imagine like in this guy's position, he knew he was being followed. He probably felt like they, they might be able to track my phone somehow. So I can imagine spiraling out on these thoughts of like, they they'll know everything. And so it's safer if I just delete the emails, but that is, of course, a tactic. Like, they are not the CIA. They did not bug your phone and laptop. Like, yeah. they wouldn't have known if you took photos. Like, grab your digital camera from 1990. They didn't have those in 1990. <laughs> you know, your high school digital camera.
1: Grab that disposable Kodak <laughs> and, and go to town. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Get some Polaroids in those emails, man.
1: (laughs) I mean, that is real, though, that, like, as employees started to resign and leave the company because they were realizing how messed up everything was. And they were understanding the scope of how bad things had gotten at Theranos. They, Theranos, decided to attack all of those employees because they heard that Carrie Rue had this article in the works at the wall street journal. And so they went after every person who resigned and said, I know you talked to the wall street journal. uh, You know, we're going to sue you whether that was true or not. And the truth was they didn't have a guarantee that any of the people who had left had talked to him. They were just threatening everyone in the hopes that it would root out the people who were scared enough to, you know, stop talking to the reporter. So yeah, they're, was a lot going on in the entire time. And I think the other part that's tricky about it is that while they were extremely courageous and brave to trust Carrie Rue to begin with, to hold them as an anonymous source, mm-hmm. you could also understand their hesitancy to continue believing that he would uphold those verbal agreements that are not something Mm -hmm. that he had to if his establishment was being sued and he was being sued. So there's a lot of trust that needed to happen between the journalists and the sources, uh, which I I suppose is always the case, but specifically when you're talking about violating an NDA that you did sign, um, that was pretty important.
0: Yeah, totally. I think NDAs are so insidious in that way, where it's like, obviously they are at their best intended pr- to protect actual trade secrets, but at their worst, they're just gag orders mm-hmm. that prevent people from talking about actual crimes. Yeah, it's it's so ugh, it's so gross. Yeah. But there's no way to, like, start a new job and be like, I'm not going to sign that NDA. Like, they'll just be like, okay, then you're not hired. Right, exactly. You just have so little leverage.
1: Well, and you don't even know how bad things are until after you've signed the NDA because everybody else there signed an NDA. So it's not like you can message somebody on LinkedIn and say, how's the work environment? And they could tell you, it's shitty, everyone's lying, don't come here. Because everybody else also signed the nda so you're you're entering this tube of secrecy and that both protected and propelled the pathological lying that we have outlined extensively
0: (laughs) (laughs) protect propel pathological lying (laughs) yeah that's exactly yeah that's exactly correct Uh that I think with anything like a tool that can be used nobly for good can also be exploited for bad mm-hmm. in the hands of someone like Sonny and Elizabeth. Well, should we move to ratings? Yeah, let's do and it. And pop culture pairings. Okay.
1: What are you rating this? Yeah. Yeah. I can do mine first. So I am a diabetic as we have talked about. And so obviously, as I was going through this, I was thinking a lot about blood, my own blood testing, and my glucometer, which measures my blood glucose or blood sugar that I use all the time, every day. And so to me, I wanted to rate this book a 100 on the glucometer, which is exactly perfect, something that diabetics hardly ever get. And so (laughs) that is my That's so good. Rating for this book. I really appreciated how it was written. I thought he did a wonderful job of outlining all of the issues from the various different perspectives and then balancing that with how the media and general public was perceiving things as they were going along. And I also really liked that, as we've mentioned, about two thirds of the way through the book, he kind of switches it to his own perspective and talks about how it falls apart from the perspective of him as the journalist investigating the company, so uh, I I really thought it was wonderful, and I would definitely read something by him again.
0: Yeah, I agree. It felt like a book that when I finished it, I kind of wanted to start reading it again. It, the mm-hmm. story was so good to me, and it was so well written that I was really wished it could keep going, which is a sign of like a great book. Mm-hmm. So my rating, I'm going to switch into character to provide it, because mine is um, five out of five proprietary trade secrets. (laughs) And I just want to be very clear that by listening to this podcast, you've signed an NDA about the content that you heard here today.
1: You've all signed up an audio NDA, (laughs) a binding contract that you Um, cannot get out
0: of. I will be working on my next startup, which is about laser printing a rocket that will take you to the moon.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Where I have already laser printed a mansion in which we can all live.
0: And obviously there will be abilities to test your blood once we arrive. There's always going to be blood things.
1: (laughs) (laughs) There's always a blood thing. There's always a blood part of this.
0: (laughs) That's my whole brand, okay? and black turtles okay i'll stop uh yeah that's my rating it's a five out of five it was great loved it
1: yeah i liked it a lot too um so what is your pop culture pairing for this book
0: so this is a podcast that i listened to the summer of 2019 actually i started it while i was in chicago on my way home from your wedding and it's called The Dropout by ABC News. And it is all about Theranos. And it, I hadn't listened to it since that time back two years ago, but I started listening to it again today. And I was like, Oh, this is so good. Like now that I have the context of the book, it's just such a great deep dive. They interview a lot of the people that John rue does and you get to hear their voices. And, you get to hear Elizabeth's voice throughout it, which just really enriches all of the, like, goofy insanity. And it, it was really great in conjunction with the book. I felt like the book gave me all the context that I needed for the podcast to be very informative and uh, satisfying. So that mm-hmm. is my pairing for this one.
1: Yeah, that sounds great. I have two pairings. One is related to the Theranos story, which is The Inventor, which is a documentary about this story that is on Hulu. And it's only an hour, so it obviously does not cover all of the context that the book does but it does give you a very good idea of the rise and fall of the company and a little bit of elizabeth's backstory as well and as you're saying it really comes to life when you have the interviews of all of the people that were involved and being able to hear them speak directly to the camera Mm -hmm. tyler is in it and speaks extensively Uh, As does John Carreyrou, actually. Yeah. So it's fun to hear from both of them. Yes. And then the other pop culture pairing I had is a fiction book that I read last year that is not about the Theranos story, but does involve a Ponzi scheme that I found pretty compelling. And it's called The Glass Hotel by Emily St. John Mandel. And she is pretty well known for her other book that I believe came out. Maybe two years ago, called uh, Station 11, which is about a pandemic. So, quite a few people were reading that in the last year (laughs) as they were going through our own pandemic. A little too much for me to read during the pandemic, but to each their own. And Mm -hmm. this book uh, I found to be really interesting as they were talking about the Ponzi scheme and uh, how that intersected with the characters who I found really interesting.
0: Nice. I you've recommended that book to me before, and now I'm really in the mood to read it because I just want to keep reading about terrible schemes.
1: (laughs) Yeah, it's it's pretty interesting. It follows primarily a character who is not quite involved in the Ponzi scheme, so I always kind of appreciate that perspective Mm -hmm. as somebody who is not fully in it but is able to observe everything that's happening from. A somewhat safe distance, so I think that can be pretty interesting.
0: Definitely. Ooh, that sounds so good.
1: I also realized I haven't recommended any fiction books for any of our pop culture pairings, so I was like, gotta slip one in here soon.
0: Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I usually go with podcasts, which is like great, but it's it's not the only thing that exists in pop culture. Uh, <laughs> so maybe I could branch out a bit.
1: <laughs> we can do whatever we want. It's our podcast. Oh, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> Thank God, that's right. I think you We're mean it's on my
0: here. podcast. <laughs> it's not even funny anymore.
1: I'm kind of afraid you're developing an alter ego that you might need to go <laughs> kill. Seriously, I don't know. I don't Time know. to go back
0: to therapy. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Elizabeth Holmes' voice put me in therapy.
0: <laughs> I, like, show back up and my therapist is like, so what's going on? And I'm like, well, I've turned into Elizabeth <laughs>
1: oh Well, God. this is
0: who I am now. <laughs> I don't understand why I can't stop talking. <laughs>
1: <laughs> but I digress. Uh, tune in again next time for more of our bullshit. <laughs>